Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style, downloading to you from the work-from-home offices of Hand Baldishin and Associates, high above Central Park in New York, New York. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer and fashion law professor, and I am joined today by industry veteran, uh, fashion investor, uh, fashion financial services provider, and mentor, Gary Wasner. Gary, thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure, Doug. You've been in the industry as long as I have and and quite a bit longer, Um, but I never really got to know how you how you came to be in the industry you know it's not an obvious industry for people to fall into so no, no, not at all. how did it happen well it's an interesting story and i don't want to belabor the the, the story too long but i was getting my phd in philosophy uh in Bryn Mawr college um i was 23 24. Yeah. my father and uncle had a small finance company in New York that had nothing to do with the fashion industry. They financed machinery and equipment and things like that. My father got sick, long story short, asked me to come to New York, take a leave, help him out for a while. He never got better, I never left. End of story on how I got here, uh, how I transitioned the company from uh, what it was, which I really didn't enjoy, and didn't want to spend my life doing, to what we are today is a much longer story. So you are CEO of Hilden and have been for as long as I can remember. Um, For those of our listeners who are not familiar with financial factoring, in particular financial factoring and its its primacy in the fashion industry, can you explain what Hilden does? Sure, I mean, we do multiple things in addition to all mainline factoring, but factoring in a nutshell is uh, you're a manufacturer, you're selling to stores, to retailers, to wholesalers, it doesn't really matter, you're selling to a third party. Uh, you don't know anything about their credit standing, their ability to pay their bills. You submit the order to us, we do that credit work for you. And then in addition to telling you whether they're credit worthy, we tell you that we will or will not guarantee the payment of that retailer or wholesaler. When we say guarantee, we mean that if they fail to pay you the financial inability to pay, we pay you 100 cents on the dollar for the amount that we have approved, providing, of course, you shipped it according to the order and sample and so on, follow the terms of purchase. So, so that requires a great deal of diligence on retailers, obviously. You've got to know their financial wherewithal, their, their current position. How do you do that? It's really challenging. And there are times, particularly today, when it's more challenging than ever uh, because of our precarious economic situation uh, globally. Uh, We rely upon multiple sources, plus our relationships with the retailers directly. I happen to have personal relationships with uh, many, if not most, uh, of the luxury retailers uh, in, in the US and many global. Uh, matches or, or net a pay etc. Uh, part of what has allowed us to provide the kind of credit that our clients need 
and approvals that they need is we focused and we focused our business in the luxury design or contemporary luxury sector. Uh, so we're talking about, well, still 10,000 uh, small specialty stores around the, the globe, but only a handful of large retailers. Uh, and those take up uh, understanding, working with them, uh, providing credit, uh, that takes up a huge amount of time and diligence. We have NDAs with almost all of them, if not all of them. Uh, we see their financials regularly. We look at their cash flows, their liquidity positions, and we rely upon multiple uh, outside sources to confirm and to reinforce uh, our decisions. Well, it's interesting, you know, those that are not as embedded in the industry as perhaps you and I, it's hard to understand all of the interrelationships that are necessary, uh, given how disparate production is and design and, and, and retail. Um, and, and so that has been both an opportunity for young brands um, because and I'll tell you what you already know, but perhaps some listeners may not know. You know, on the basis of sample production alone and some, some great press with either a first presentation or show, you could go from zero to 100 in terms of becoming a global brand if you got those right wholesale accounts to buy you. Yeah, and yeah we saw that in the 90s and aughts. Um, happened all the time. Now, given that that was, you know, that was sort of a two decade long um, spike in new brands, and we have perhaps more brands than ever um, in the history, really, of fashion in terms of number of brands. I think there are more brands than ever. Do you feel, um, even putting aside the, 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 the dire economics, that there are too many brands today and that there will be a culling and a, 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 a more focused approach to brand building. In the yeah, I find that actually, and I don't mean this personally, I find that to be an odd question, too many brands. There's probably too much product in the market, but isn't that for the public and for the retailers to determine? Uh, the more young creatives we have, the happier I am and the better off we are. There's more competition, there's more incentive to be best, uh, to be better, uh, so I would never say there are too many brands. I, I might say there's too much product from each brand mm -hmm. that people are overspending, overdesigning, overproducing, oversampling, et cetera. And I think we've all learned that lesson pretty poignantly during this um, COVID uh, pandemic. Yeah, yeah. But too many brands, no. Yeah, no, you know I like to be provocative. So I'm, I'm gonna push and prod and you know I have a vested interest in there being many, many brands. Yeah. So, um, I agree with you on, on, on that uh, scope. And I think what that leads to is really a recognition that many brands should be focused, that the model, which again, we saw during that 90s and aughts period of the billion dollar lifestyle brand as kind of the goal, the brass ring that every brand strove to achieve is not, may never happen again, but certainly is not for every brand. Correct. I mean, so many things have changed, though. I think uh, we're not creating those mega brands any longer. And I don't know that there's need to create those mega brands any longer. Need on anybody's part, either the consumers or the brand itself. I think 
over a period of time, our industries evolved so much in terms of what was the focus, what the focus was for the owners and for the investors who fuel this. Now, remember, I didn't, what I left out about factoring is we're the lenders also. We're the first lender to our clients. So we provide them with their cash flow. Uh, rather than taking an equity position, it's a loan. Uh, and it's in the beginning stages of a business, you know, borrowing and factoring is the cheapest way of financing a business and equity, selling equity is the most expensive, as you know. Uh, in, in any event, uh, focus has changed. Again, partially due to the pandemic, but we were in a period of top line was all that mattered. Uh, growth was all that mattered. And private equity was looking for top line growth. They didn't care what bottom line looked like. They figured we'll fix it over time and then sell it. As you know, you know, private equity, three to five years in and out and make your profit and move on. Right. Uh, prior to that, designers in the 90s, as, as you mentioned earlier, thought about their brand as a, as a, as a lifetime job. And they, they would build this brand and they would remain at the helm of this brand as, as I do at my company. Uh, it, it changed over a period of time as different sources of funding, uh, equity funding came into the market and top line became critical. Uh, we've learned during the pandemic that top line is not what matters. What matters is the cash, retention of cash uh, and profit. So I think we've seen a significant change in perspective over these past nine months. Uh, it's a, an appropriate period of time to give birth to a new uh, perspective on the industry. Uh, and I think people are much more focused now, particularly entrepreneurs in this country and young independent brands, on making a living from their businesses rather than Build, 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 build at the expense of bottom line, at the expense of profit, and sell. And that's a good and healthy change from, from my perspective. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the great European houses that we look at now that may still have family ownership, perhaps they don't, they're one of the big you know, three European conglomerates, but they were built more or less on that premise. They started from, I mean, the house of Gucci, they were, you know, they, they were leather makers and, and just ended up, you know, sort of falling into branding because they were, had a flair and, and had a quality. And, um, you know, then the family became involved and, and, and that is a great legacy. And obviously there are a lot of uh, cooks in the kitchen, so to speak, these days. But, you know, th those brands have, have been led by strong creative directors, I think. That's, that's why we are seeing you know, the, the, the somewhat uh, musical chairs of creative directors um, as, they, as they are celebrated and rightfully so. That's a really challenging uh, subject because it depends entirely on the creative director. Uh, some, some designers, as we know, bring their aesthetic to the house regardless of the house DNA. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't necessarily work. And we saw that with Ralph Simmons and Calvin Klein. We've seen that repeatedly many houses. Take it back to what you were talking about a minute ago. Uh, take a Dries Van Noten. Right. Dries owned and operated and designed for his own company all these years until he reached a point, uh, an age, where he felt he needs to have a partner because he's reaching 
retirement age. Uh, and until then, he maintained control of his house. Incredibly successful, incredibly profitable. I wouldn't call it a mega brand. I would call it a stellar brand. Uh, it it ex excelled in so many categories. Uh, but he did it, and this sounds silly, but the old-fashioned way. Uh, and it was incredibly successful for him. Now he has a partner, an appropriate partner. Uh, he was very careful in choosing his partner. And uh, the brand continues with the same aesthetic and the same design direction. If you brought someone else into Dries who didn't care about the history and culture, who wanted to make their own mark on a, a company like that, you would lose your audience. You would lose those loyal Dries uh, consumers, and that would be true with any house, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I think uh, Alessandro Michel has done a great job at Gucci. I think we look at what he's done, and whether we like it or not is not the issue, but he has culled from it the essence of Gucci, and he's made it that much more obvious. So as a creative director, perfect. perfect. Uh, you take others that jump from brand to brand and bring with them their own aesthetic and you might as well just you know buy any brand in that case and not the one you go to so well so how about back to the billion dollar brand and there still are billion dollar brands out there right they sort of got over that hump and and uh they're public companies and 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 there they are what's the future for them gary do you think that they will their market share will erode or well, I think it is eroding. I think it is eroding. I mean, you see problems at the top of uh, Ralph Lauren and uh, you know, all, all of the major brands, only because the consumer has access now to everything that's created globally through their, through their telephone. We never had that before. Consumer was a victim of what was put in front of them, and a victim not in a bad way, but you know, strictly in an information way. Uh, they didn't have the choice, choices that they have today. So naturally, that's going to dilute the value of a mega brand because of options, other options, alternatives. Uh, I don't think building a mega brand today should be a goal of anybody's. I don't, I don't see the point. I think what you want to build is a profitable company that, that you can, as an entrepreneur, uh, you can be involved with for as long as you choose, and you can uh, create what you want to create, appeal to your consumer, adapt as, the, as we all do to circumstances, and make a lot of money. I mean, that's why you're in business. I always tell this to the designers. Yeah, I say, yes, we're, our industry is, is the perfect blend of uh, art and commerce, and it is. We're not creating product to hang on a wall or to put in a frame. It may end up in a museum if you're that good and you have a long legacy, but basically, we're creating product for people to wear and to feel better about themselves by wearing it. So you have to think on the commerce side. You can't just think on the artistic side. So as we evolve in, it, in the industry, uh, as what we do is available to everyone globally from whatever country you might live in, they can see your product if they search hard enough. Uh, you have to create a great product that hasn't changed. It has to be great product. But as far as generic product, it's generic. You can buy it anywhere. Mega brands, I think when you talk about mega, you talk about billions of dollars, it's even by definition generic. So the novelty, the excitement, 
in competition with all of our opportunities and all of our choices today becomes less, just becomes less important. So, so you know, the, the European big three, right? Richemont, LVMH, Caring. Here in the US, now we have a couple of, of big tapestry and Capri Holdings, sort of based on the, we will acquire a number of brands, perhaps under the umbrella of one global brand or, or lifestyle brand, but we will buy brands that, that have some degree of focus. The LVMH Tiffany deal now going through, um, I think thank goodness for both sides that, uh, that that got off the rails of litigation and is now back to being a deal that will close. But what do you think about that portfolio company model, given what you said about, you know, sort of breadth of, is that the right way to look at it? There's a long history and culture of that kind of support coming out of Europe that we've never had here. You take an LVMH, they own their whole supply chain. It's quite different, even than tapestry. Uh, they own the supply chain from the tanneries to the retail. And I think that's been their goal all along. They dictate, they dictate to the market, they dictate to the major retailers, uh, their terms, their product, their positioning, their advertising, and they do it by virtue of owning the entire supply chain. We don't do that here. We've never done that here. Uh, we also have never had uh, a conglomerate that supported the entrepreneurial spirit of young designers and, and looked long-term at developing a brand. So our designers, uh, like an Altazar, incredibly talented designer, had to look to Europe for support because they would give them longer-term support uh, than a private equity firm here would do. You're here three years, four years, five years, and they're out, uh, and they must make money. So there's a very different motive that LVMH might have. Not that they don't want to make money, but uh, they certainly do, and they do very, very well. Uh, but they do nurture, and they can afford to nurture a young brand for many, many years and develop it. And we don't do that here. So uh, it's hard to answer your question with regard to how I feel about it. If it's done that way, I think it's really, really excellent for a designer and a brand. They give them independence. They give the young brands that they invest in independence. They don't take majority in the beginning. You know, there are many things that they do to nurture small brands and incredibly creative talent. We don't do that here. So if we did, yes, I would say it's a good thing, but we don't. Well, I love that. There, so there are two, two things that you said. I want to pick up on both of them. So let's put a pin on supporting designers through that conglomerate model and, and tackle the supply chain. You know, so can Tapestry and or Capri Holdings, given what you know about apparel production in the United States today, i.e., it ain't really happening. You know, you still have some denim in California. You do have some facilities, Canada, sort of Chicago that are tailored clothing based, but can we build that back up as a nation? Is that going to happen? I have always been a proponent of domestic manufacturing. I think if we don't take control of our supply chain, we're victims, we're always victims. We saw that during the pandemic, particularly the first three months of it. Uh, can we, I think we can today, uh, not in every category of production, but certainly in many. 
I think we're seeing the, the beginnings of it in certain places. And, and, and as soon as I finish my thought, I'll, I'll mention one. Uh, right now, the lag time to produce overseas is crippling smaller companies. Retailers are asking repeatedly and very forcefully for designers and brands that can get be quicker to market. They want product sooner after they see it developed. We can't do that with our current supply chain, the way it's positioned. So there's, there are multiple reasons aside from, from not being vulnerable uh, to bringing production on shore. Uh, and as long as we have the, these extensive and expensive costs of transportation, uh, lag time, uh, cost of labor going up in, in China, obviously, as they become more developed, uh, we're more competitive. You are becoming more competitive. And that as soon as we're more competitive, there's no reason why we wouldn't redevelop manufacturing here. Also, it, it, I hate to say this, but it's very hard to produce in New York City because of the cost of labor and because of the cost of living. But we can produce anywhere else other than a major city around this country that has transportation hubs and so on. And as I said, I was going to bring up an example. Uh, St. Louis, we, I'm a part of this, so I, I'm not uh, blowing my own horn here. I'm just mentioning that uh, we opened up a knitting factory in St. Louis last year. A group of investors and two very experienced people in the industry uh, in St. Louis, supported by the city, the mayor, by real estate downtown, by a large group of, of, of individuals from St. Louis and a few of us from New York. And it opened up, I believe, in May. Uh, for production, and even during these times, it's exceeded capacity in terms of orders immediately. And now looking to double the amount of space. So my theory has always been the same. And when I went to St. Louis uh, to talk to the mayor and to talk to the city council, tell them why I believed in this and why I think they should support it. When there's demand and there's no supply, you have opportunity. We have demand, we can't do knits on shore. We haven't been able to for a long time. Their own knitting was done in China. So that to me was the most logical place to start. Uh, when you have demand and no supply, you have opportunity, I'll repeat it. And we do have demand now for multiple reasons. As I said, getting product quicker to market uh, and get, it, get your product to them faster. Uh, cost of transportation cost of bringing goods in. Don't have it if you produce domestically. If you're in a hub like St. Louis, you have trains, you have trucking, you have all of the things that you need. There's no duty on product, which as we know has become a major issue for importing product. And that has made us, made the opportunity here a more competitive for us, making it better for us to consider these options. So yes, I think we can onshore multiple categories of manufacturing in our industry, and I think we need to. So back to the uh, creative incubation that a conglomerate either can bring or, or not. 
this may be a hard question because I know you know people at both places, but do you think Tapestry and Capri Holdings are good or bad examples of that type of incubation? I think Tapestry is a good example, actually. I, I don't know if they'll succeed because they have so many eyes on them all the time. They're not private in the way that LVMH is private and they can't just do what they only want to do. Uh, and that's always a handicap in, a, in, in, in our industry where it takes a long time to build a brand. Yes, it can happen overnight, but to really build a brand takes a longer time than most investors have the patience for. So I think that will be the biggest issue that Tapestry is going to face. Uh, whether they can make the proper investments in young talent, uh, whether they're going to make more investments, uh, and try to build that full supply chain coverage that their competitors own. Uh, without it, it's going to be very difficult for them. So with Biden, um, albeit challenged in the courts, and that'll take a while, but that will, in my opinion, dissipate. Um, do you see a leader supporting the fashion industry here in the United States uh, and, and the type of model that, that, that you laid out and, and, and you're building out in, in St. Louis? That's a good question. We, we have never gotten the federal government to understand the industry at all. We don't have a consistent lobby for fashion. Uh, we have it for retailers and so on, but uh, we've never gotten them to understand the scope of our industry and the size of our industry. They just don't get it. I think we're, we're, we'll be more successful on a regional level. When Bloomberg was mayor of New York, his support for the industry was fantastic. He created so many opportunities, uh, brought people together. That's what we need. And I think we need it more regionally than we really do coming from the federal government. I think Biden, as president, will encourage a more cooperative relationship between federal and state uh, than we've seen, obviously, in the, in the past four years. And I think uh, all we need the government to do is, is accept the, the, the words of our, our regional leaders, governors and mayors, and, and provide the funding to back up the cities and states. Uh, and then, yes, uh, because it's a tremendous industry. It's a huge industry. And one good thing about fashion, when you go into it as a business, is it's never going away. You get up every morning, you get dressed, whether you're staying home or going out. I mean, 99.9% .9 of the people don't walk around naked, even at home, all day long. So how is this product ever going to go away? So it's really a renewable industry in that sense. Uh, we have to make it more sustainable in addition to being renewable, but it's never going away. We're always going to get dressed and it, and it makes us feel better uh, to wear things we like and to you know, express our personality. So in that respect, we need support. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it's, uh, it can become a, a source of national pride. You look at the French, you look at the yeah. Italians, um, you know, you look at the Japanese and, and the way in which in some sense, they've been able to express a national identity through apparel choices, accessory choices, uh, and, a, and, a, and a certain pride, obviously. In and that's very interesting that you mentioned Japan, because when I, when I was growing up, as, as you know, I'm older than you are, when I was growing up, made in Japan meant cheap, meant bad. If you got a baseball mitt made in Japan, it wasn't the same as getting one made in the USA. So we've seen that image deteriorate over the 
players, and we certainly can rebuild that image with craftsmanship uh, here, but it needs to be supported financially in order for us to do that. We just gave it up because we were lazy and it was easier to offshore, and we didn't realize the consequences to us as a country and as an economy, uh, but we realize it now. So now's the opportunity to onshore these things and to, to make Made in USA again something really valuable. And I think we can do that with a president like Biden, who is more unifying. And I think that's what we've been missing, a unification in the sense that we are one country uh, trying to, 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 to create uh, one economy for the people who live here and success for everyone. So I'm optimistic about that. I am too. I am too. Let, let's, uh, this isn't a pivot. This is just a slight head nod over to the CFDA because we're talking about national and state policy support. And obviously the CFDA's role as a industry association comprised of designers. And for those that don't know, it is not an industry association of retailers or of production facilities or, you know, it is designer based. The members are pure designers. Um, what, what do you see their role being in, in, in this process? And do you think they're doing a good job of it? I don't want to make a comment. It's been such challenging times for everybody. Uh, I've been a big supporter of CFDA for years and years, and I've been involved in many of their programs and mentoring, and, and I always will be. Uh, I think they could take a much bigger role uh, in our industry than they have. I think they could speak globally on behalf of US, United, you know, American fashion uh, a little more than they do. I think it's, again, challenging and hard, and, and there are multiple reasons why they haven't. Uh, I don't think we should be encouraging American designers to show in Paris. I don't think we should be encouraging uh, offshoring or I think we need to support American vision in fashion. And we have created almost every trend in the world here that has been adopted by every other country. Uh, and we, we're not really given the respect uh, now. We were for years, but not now, uh, for what we do here. We're great at contemporary product. We may not be, be the craftsmen now to create ultra luxury like an Hermes or uh, LVMH was, uh, but we create incredible design and incredible contemporary product. And that's what we have to reinforce globally. And I think CFDA could play a major role in, in supporting uh, that concept of, of who we are as a country when it comes to design and fashion and trend setting. And, uh, you know, I don't fault them for not doing it. Uh, there are multiple reasons, again, as I said, why they haven't. Uh, and I'm not running CFDA, and I'm not an officer or on a board or anything, so I really don't have uh, the perspective to judge them in that respect. Uh, but I know what the industry needs, and I know what my clients need. And we finance over 450 brands, so I hear it all the time. Uh, and it's more than we have right now. Well, it is herding cats is, is not even half of it when you're talking about a membership which is comprised of, of creative professionals. 
and some of whom are at the head of billion dollar brands and some of whom are at the head of brands that you know are, are underwater. Um, so a, a difficult task for sure, but, uh, but one I know everybody there takes seriously. Uh, I would really like to see them take a, a, a stronger leadership position, uh, particularly during times like these. And I am a little disappointed that uh, they haven't. And as I said, I'm sure there are multiple reasons why they haven't, but we needed that voice the past nine months and, and, and we didn't hear it. And my clients tell me the same, that they, they rely upon other sources to help them through this. Uh, and uh, I think they missed an opportunity here. Um, and and it, it's a shame, but I think they can regain it. I mean, people respect CFTA tremendously. Uh, they have to just find their way and maneuver through this and figure out what they can do best to support uh, American designers. Well, you mentioned uh, sustainable production and obviously a, a shift to domestic production has the inherent advantage of, of not having to travel as far, which is one of the elements of, of dirtiness in the industry. I mean, we both know that the fashion industry is, is behind only fossil fuels. Uh, in terms of, of its waste and that a tremendous amount of apparel production winds up burned or in the planet. Um, so certainly domestic production will help. What do you think about the movement towards either recycling, so secondhand goods, goods that have already been made, and, and how do you think brands can somehow make that make sense in a economy where they do need to be selling new things to continue to have a growth trajectory. We have brands that are doing that very, very successfully. Take a Greg Lauren who repurposes everything and makes incredible product. Well, not everything, but so many things. Yoli, who has always repurposed product, old product. Uh, we, we have a number of things we can do here that uh, need to be taught to our students at, at, at Parsons and FIT and every other fashion school. Zero waste, design for zero waste. Why don't we teach people how to do that? Why do we leave 30% of our fabric on the cutting room floor to be swept up and thrown out? You design for more efficiency. You design for, it's, it's not as if you're sacrificing uh, a beautiful pattern in order to to do that as well, you can do them both together. And we don't teach enough of that, and we need to. So there are many ways we can become more sustainable right here uh, and not be so wasteful. Uh, but repurposing is certainly one of them, and not everybody can do it because certainly not everybody wants uh, that kind of product. But I'm sure if we put our minds to it, we can take existing fabric and rework it into new fabric. I mean, I don't, I don't have the technology for that, but I'm sure we could develop it. We just haven't had reason to because we've not thought about these things for, for a long time, forever. We just never have. Well, certainly the, the, the for-profit motive and investment, not to get too bifurcated in terms of, you know, our economic system and consumerism, but certainly mega brands need to sell a lot of stuff. And certainly fast fashion 
has been the main culprit of feeding, encouraging and feeding that, that need and desire. Are you as, well, you don't know how much of a, a hater or proponent of fast fashion I am, but I'm, I'm pretty anti. Do you feel that, that the Zaras and the H&Ms, to just call a few out, are a source of the problem, or can they be part of the solution? They could be part of the solution. I mean, why not? Uh, certainly, they fast fashion brands and companies uh, provide a needed product, no matter how we personally may feel about it. But design a product is out of reach to the majority of the population in terms of price. And style is something everybody craves and wants. So it's natural that fast fashion took over that end of the market from the gaps and the banana republics and, and, and so on, uh, because it's style that people are looking for. I don't see why a fast fashion company cannot be sustainable as well, uh, as we know how critical it is to all of our lives and all of our, uh, and the earth's survival, I think, we need to push them harder as consumers. Consumers have a lot of power. Uh, our voices in social media have a lot of power and we need to push them to understand how important it is to our younger people and to many of us uh, that they work really hard to create sustainable product. Now, you're right when you say it's mass product and it's harder, but too bad, you know, I mean, too bad that it's harder. They've got to do it. And we've got to push them as consumers. If we don't push them, they're not going to do it. Yeah. Well, and, and there is the additional issue. People say sustainability, and it is a broad brush that covers too yeah. much in my mind. Yeah. Uh, we are speaking directly about ecological or environmental sustainability now. But there are also just the human rights violations and, and treatment of labor. Uh, which we saw acutely uh, impacted during the first wave of COVID, where the trickle-down impact of canceled orders at retail, where the brands turned around and obviously canceled orders, canceled what they could with the production facilities. And, and many of those production facilities were in Bangladesh, in India. And the labor laws there, the reason that those orders have trickled to those regions is the labor laws are not supportive of protecting workers' rights in those countries. And, and uh, hence, the margins that you can achieve by producing there are, are much higher. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, as an organization, uh, assist the brands you work with to try to find facilities that, that have- you No, know, we definitely do. We work with the number of factories that we know quite well. Uh, in India uh, and in China. Uh, and since we know them well, we know them from that perspective. Are you sustainable? What are you doing? How do you protect your workers, et cetera? And we refer them all the time. And we've done a lot, a lot of business with these factories. In fact, one particular one in India, I have uh, probably eight, 10, 12 brands, large brands are producing with them and we've made the introductions uh, and it's uh, a sustainable factory and it does incredible work and it's higher end etc so yes we do 
Uh, is it what we do all day long? No. Uh, our relationships are generally stronger with retailers and brands than they are with that side of the supply chain. Uh, but we do help out when we can. Certainly in LA, we have an office there and we have a lot of clients out there who produce there. So we're constantly referring and so on. But uh, I wouldn't say it's, it's a big part of what we do. We do assist when we can. Well, let us tackle what the future might look like as more and more professionals, uh, more and more people are working from home, working remotely, not going into a place of work where they need to necessarily present themselves in the same way that they have in the past. Um, tailored clothing, obviously an impacted segment. Uh, what do you see for the future of work from home, um, recognizing that, that it will not be forever, but I think that at least here, the workplace has forever changed and there are organizations, I'm thinking accounting firms and law firms and others that have recognized that the, the need for 300 people to all be in Fifth Avenue office space is simply not there. Um, I'm not sure that I agree. Okay. I've been in my office since, let's say, we, we, we shut down in March. We have 50 some odd people here in New York. We shut down in March. I came back in May, end of May. There are six of us, seven of us every day in the office. I find having the other 45, 50, whatever it might be, working from home incredibly inefficient, uh, incredibly taxing on our managers incredibly difficult uh, to exchange ideas, to exchange creative thoughts, to develop programs, to put heads together. We Zoom all the time. It's not the same to me. So I do disagree with that. I think we're just uh, dealing with uh, what we have to deal with. And so we're saying, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. We can live this way. We don't need this. We don't need that because people don't want this or want that today. Uh, I frankly don't want everybody coming in now, no matter how, more, how much more efficient I think it, it is. I just don't want it now. So I think we're just making excuses for that. Ultimately, I think we'll be back here. From a design perspective, listen, uh, from an artistic perspective, okay, not just a fashion designer, but anybody in the arts, uh, I'm a writer. I write a lot of books. If I didn't have an editor, I would write awful books. And when you're a designer, you need somebody to look at it. Looking at it on a screen is not the same as seeing it fully, touching it, seeing how it drapes, uh, seeing it on a model, changing things up. You know, it's not the same. It's not, this is not a, a product, as I said, we're hanging on a wall. So you really need more opinion and more personal contact and touch. So I don't think that it is going to be this way forever. For any industry, I mean, maybe maybe there's some that it's more efficient, but from my perspective, it is not, and I'm I'm not in love with it. Uh, unfortunately, it is what it is today, uh, and we have to deal with it. But I'm looking forward to being to be able to walk into the office next to mine and say, "Hey, what do you think?" You know, or having a meeting with all of us around the table and looking at product and touching it, and you know, I miss that. I do. I miss runway shows. I miss the, the 
audience. I miss talking to my friends and associates in the industry and sensing the mood out there. We can't do that on Zoom. We can talk and we can feel okay that we're seeing people, but we're not communicating the same way. Well, I, I too miss being out and about, mixing it up. You are a fixture, I will say. Your organization, candidly, is a fixture at New York Fashion Week. And the, we talked about diligence in terms of retailers. You do diligence on your clients as well and potential clients. And um, I always found that very gratifying to know that your organization took it so seriously um, and also was passionate about what your clients were doing to be there, to be supportive. Uh, what do you think about the future of New York Fashion Week having, I don't know what you watched on Runway 360, if you chose to, um, do you think this is a blip or do you think the future of New York Fashion Week is gonna largely be online, making it just a fashion week and not tied to New York in any way? This is going to be up to the, to the industry, to the people in the industry. Uh, that we have to come to some consensus about what we want New York Fashion Week to be. We haven't gotten there at all. Uh, we have a number of organizations working somewhat independently of one another. Uh, we have designers that want to show uh, that benefit from it. Uh, do we need million dollar lavish shows? Probably not, but we do need that communication, that personal interaction. So. I'm, as you know, a strong proponent of New York Fashion Week because I believe America has something to say about fashion and something to say globally about fashion. Uh, I don't think we need to compete with a Chanel in terms of showing and product and so on, but on the contemporary level, on the designer level, uh, that's, those are our strengths. And I think we need a platform for that. And New York has always been the perfect platform for it. So I'm disappointed that we've de-emphasized New York Fashion Week, that we haven't taken from the United States the strongest uh, design uh, designers that we know and encouraged them to stay here and supported them the way they do in Europe. You know, everybody's subsidized in Europe. Their shows are not necessarily paid for. Uh, particularly if you're an LVMH brand, uh, you're not pulling it out of your pocket, they're covering it. So we don't have that, as I said before. We have to work harder to get sponsorship, harder for people to understand the value of American fashion and American brands showing here. But first we have to come to a consensus. Until we have that uh, with regard to what is the future, what should be the future, does it benefit business and design here, uh, we're not going to move forward. What do you think the draw for some of those, what we'll call our great legacy houses here in the United States, has been? Do you feel that it's just the Europeans have always been associated with style and they just want to be treated as a European designer? Or Because it's not that they're unpatriotic. We know that. No, I think it's completely changed. I think the whole concept of a collection and be being and selling a collection, being collection designer, is going away. We had it in the 90s where we had Peter Som and Jason Wu and 
and, and Philip Lim and all of these great, talented people starting their brands and looking to become global brands like the Europeans. Uh, it didn't necessarily work out for many of them uh, because we don't have the infrastructure to support it uh, or the financing, as I said many times now in this conversation, to support it. Uh, I think where we are strongest is in trend, in style, and in contemporary and designer clothing. Uh, we're not competing with Europe necessarily. They generally take trend from us. And whether they'll admit it or not, they do. Streetwear, where was it invented? I mean, where was it created? What does it even mean? It means American streets, you know, clothing that came from the streets, uh, not European. So we've seen our concepts and trends appropriated by everybody globally. And that's, that's fine. That's an honor. That's you know, a compliment. Uh, but we need to take credit for what we do and what we invent and what we create. And that's what the focus needs to be. What do we do best here? What are we most known for here? And let's support it. Well, brand collaborations. I'm going to go out on a limb and, and say you're not thrilled usually about brand collaborations. I don't know. You, you can, you can, but what do you think about them? Do you, when they are in the form of drops, are those things that you would factor or not factor? And what do you think that they have, have they done anything to the industry and to design that sort of more feeds the collaboration than, than the designing? Well, let's, let's first talk about why they, they do them. And they do them for commercial reasons, right. strictly commercial reasons. You pair maybe a kind of aging, old, tired brand with a cool young brand or a cool young designer or a, uh, a musician or an artist of some kind, and you're recreating energy from a brand that's tired. So that's one commercial reason for brand collaboration. I have no opposition to that. I think it's a smart way of marketing, not a problem. Uh, I think when Target brought in all of these great young designers to do product for them, it was brilliant and it was wonderful and it brought incredibly good product to the masses, uh, style and so on, for very reasonable, amazingly reasonable prices. So brand collaborations as a uh, means of either resuscitating a brand or bringing more excitement to a brand, I think can be great if the choices are good, if the designer and the brand together uh, make sense. Now, it's not that much different from, as I said before, bringing a Raph Simmons into Calvin Klein. What was the purpose? It was commercial. Revitalize Calvin Klein's image in the world as a designer house. I mean, unfortunately, it didn't work. Uh, so many of them work, many don't. I have nothing against them. I think it, it is uh, it, not an enduring uh, way of building a brand. Uh, but it certainly is a good way to bring attention to a, a tired brand or just to enhance a very cool brand by matching it up with someone who is equally as cool. Yeah. Well, let's ask the related question on, uh, you mentioned influencers and you're right to, in a way, consider that a collaboration because the influencer, like the celebrity, is a brand. They, they, they've, they've, taken pains to create a brand around themselves, usually. Um, the influencer economy, particularly given this time, 
um, has really rapidly um, expanded into that, that, that line between talent and an influencer is, is extremely blurred. I mean, if you do have a million followers, you are talent. So, so goes the PR and the marketing engine for the industry uh, in terms of, of what they're willing to spend. What do you think about that? And in particular, so that the question is different, what do you think about influencers who now hold brands like, like something Navy and Ariel Charnas? What, what, what do you, will those brands have lasting power or are they not? Uh, in my opinion, no. Uh, some of them, one or two occasionally, will be an enduring brand, but they're not designers, they're stylists. Uh, some stylists, yes, can create brands around, around them because they're very good at putting concept together, but they're not <clears throat> necessarily the ones who create the ideas. I am... When I look at today's world, uh, I'm not sure how you see it with regard to the power of influencers today, but I think it's not grown during this pandemic. I think we've seen a few close up shop and go home. Uh, I think we've also seen the, the consumer turn inward in terms of what they want and what they want to wear. We are now <clears throat> thinking about dressing for ourselves. We're living at home. We're not out to events, where, so, so we're thinking very differently about what we choose to wear. And it's a much more personal than it is objective uh, uh, vision. We used to think, how am I gonna look in this environment? What do I wanna wear with all these particular people <clears throat> in this environment tonight or next week with a different group? What do I wanna look like? What impression do I wanna give? Well, we don't have that opportunity. So now it's just about how do I feel about what I'm wearing? You know, how do I feel about the choices I'm making personally? And it's, we don't need an influencer to tell us that because we're not going to go show it to anybody. So we're really looking to our, ourselves to make choices that we haven't done in a long time. People have relied upon, oh, I like that. Look, let's put it together, you know, and, and, and buy it and buy it in pieces. But now that, that's not the impetus because you're not stepping out and having people judge you evaluate you except on zoom and i mean obviously you know i didn't think too much about what i was wearing today uh <clears throat> you think more about other things yeah so yeah. the power of influencers i think has has gone away when it comes to apparel during the pandemic uh, may have uh, rejuvenated itself in other categories like health care and maintenance and skin care and beauty and uh categories like that, but when it comes to fashion, what do they have to say to us that matters during a pandemic when we're at home? I mean, it's gotta be our choices for our own comfort and style and to make us feel good in the world. Yeah, I like to get put on something that makes me feel good, whether anybody's gonna see it or not, but it's a very different perspective than it was before when I was going to a show or going to an event or going you know, to the Met or whatever the case might be. So how enduring this perspective will be, I think probably is dependent upon how long we're sequestered in this way. Uh, and we'll see, we'll see. Well, Gary, as, as we're wrapping up, I'll, I'll give you a more metaphysical question that I don't think I've ever asked you. 
What, in your opinion, is the difference between fashion and style? Interesting. Uh, and I, I do talk about this a lot. But style is how you put fashion together. Uh, it's how you take a piece from this collection and a piece from that collection and style it in a way that is unique and says something about you, hopefully, as a human being. Uh, fashion, to me, are the individual pieces, the craftsmanship, the design, the fit, the fabric. To me, that's fashion. Uh, style is how you take those beautiful pieces. But you can take some really beautiful pieces that are true fashion pieces and put them together in a way that's just horrendous. So that's the difference between style and well, I, I think that's spot on. Well, listen, Gary, any parting comments from you? I know that you are very active uh, on several nonprofit boards, um, as well as academic institutions. Uh, anything you'd like to mention before we part? Uh, only that, uh, what I say to my clients on a regular basis, this is going to end, this, this situation we're in is going to end and people are gonna come out of it with a different perspective and be prepared. Uh, I've encouraged clients to take this time to reassess their supply chains, to reassess how many products they make, to reassess sustainability. We have the time to do it and many of them have done so. So they're gonna come out of this healthier, stronger, better perspective and I encourage everyone to do that during these kinds of times. Really reassess who you are, where you are, what you want to be uh, in this industry. And everybody in the peripheral and the periphery of the industry to do the same. Uh, and we, we have so much opportunity. So as we come out of this, I hope we retain the lessons we've learned uh, from all this pain and suffering. And uh, I'm hopeful. Well, Gary, Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Best to the family. Um, I miss seeing you, but yes. um, I hope to see you soon. And uh, everyone else, thanks for listening. Bye now. Thanks. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.